chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. If you're here for the first time, we're kind of, we're deviating from where we were in terms of sound doctrine. We were talking about sound doctrine. It's important for a church to have sound doctrine and for adherence in that church to understand where the church stands. It's so important in these last days because sound doctrine will not be something that will characterize many Christians who will have a form of godliness but no power. People will go looking for teachers to say what they want to hear and all that kind of stuff, and you'll hear all kind of weird things, fables, traditions that are not biblical. They may be popular, but they're not right with God. We're taking a momentary break from that series to talk about the church's vision, because while we were at our staff retreat, that was one of the things that came forth from our staff retreat, and that was the need to uh, rehearse and reshare recast the vision of Strong Tower Bible Church because we're seeing so many new people who are coming and people may not understand what God has given us as we play our role in the kingdom. So we want to make the vision plain. So as Christy said last week, quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, that we can run with the vision because if the vision of this church isn't uh, plain, then how can we add to it? How can we share with others what the vision is? So I'm going to ask God to help me communicate clearly so that you can hear it, hopefully add to it, and that all of us may run with the vision. So let us pray. Father, thank you for positioning us in this city for such a time as this. Thank you for so ordering our steps that you not only included us in the kingdom, but you have so endowed us with spiritual gifts, passions, and abilities to reach people in your name. Whether it be on our jobs, in our neighborhoods, wherever we may go in the marketplace, we are your ministers. We thank you that we are the church scattered. Wherever we go, we are your salt, we are your light. But we are also the church gathered. We are a mighty community. And Lord God, we are banded and bonded together because of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit and a commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So Lord God, I pray in a fresh way, in an unusual way, you will pour out your spirit on this church that, Lord God, we would do great and mighty exploits in your name. Men and women, boys and girls would not only come to know Jesus, but understand their purpose in living for Jesus. Do it in our generation. And as we're talking about uh, getting the balcony back together, Lord, and all that stuff, Lord, we believe that you can add to this church where we're busting at the seams, where there's standing room only. Even Jesus, as you went into homes and people couldn't even get in because you were there and they had to let people down through the roof because there was an excitement that Jesus was in the house. Jesus, I pray that you would lead people to this house, draw them to this place, to this strong tower, that they may find you. And thank you, Lord, for compelling us to go out, to compel them to come in. Do it in our midst. Do it in our generation. Change lives, starting with each and every one of us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And I'm so glad that I get to be here. Can somebody say amen? I get to be here. Thank God for grace today. Well, 
Strong Tower Bible Church, we talk about GDK, God's diverse kingdom. And that is something that we want to experience. And it's something that we're called to expand. God's diverse kingdom, experience it and expand it. Why? Because in God's diverse kingdom, we see race. We see class. We see gender. But above all, and most importantly, we see Jesus who brings the kind of unity that we all need and cry for in the midst of our diversity. So we're not so spiritually minded that we're no earthly relevant. We're not like those who say, hey, I'm colorblind. Not only does that make no sense whatsoever, it's not even biblical. When someone says, I'm colorblind, no, 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 you see my color and I see yours. What we're saying is that we're not going to judge or condemn someone based on the color of their skin. Can an Ethiopian change his skin, the Bible says? And the answer is no. So we acknowledge the skin of an Ethiopian, the skin of a European, the skin of a Latino person, the skin of an Asian person. We see color. We see race. As a matter of fact, we celebrate color. We celebrate race. We don't deny it. We don't put it, you know, in a bushel somewhere. We're not ashamed. We're not afraid. We see it. We just don't define people by it. We just don't limit people by it. We see class. We're not afraid of wealth. We're not afraid of poverty. We're not afraid of middle income because that's how God made us. He's the one who, according to Acts 17, uh, predetermined our boundaries, where we would live, how we would live, who, would, who we would be born to. And if you're an American, you are wealthy because most of the world lives on less than $2 a day. So if you have running water, if you have indoor plumbing, if you had a choice of a change of clothing, if you had a choice of what you would eat, I want to let you know that like me, you are wealthy. And God wants us to serve the least of these with the wealth that he has given. And as Paul Revere talked about the measure, the measure we use will be meted back unto us. We give not so we can get and hoard. We give. It's the law of the kingdom that we may give back more. If I use a little shovel, a little shovel is coming back to me. But if I use a large shovel in my giving to God, he shovels it back to me that I can keep shoveling it out. And he shovels it into me that I can shovel it out. Because I'm learning that I need to lay up my treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't get to. And I try to hoard it here. And so we thank God because God spends a lot of time in the Bible talking about money. It's real. He made provisions in the law for the Jews to minister to the poor, not only in Israel, but also to serve strangers and foreigners and aliens around the nation of Israel. Jesus said, the poor you're going to have with you always. And a lot of times they are there uh, as a barometer of where our hearts are, how we look at the poor, how we serve the poor shows us where we stand with the Lord. Because when we love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength, we must love our neighbor, especially if our neighbor is of lesser economic means than we have. And so we see class and we see gender. We spend time encouraging women, including women, encouraging men to take part not only in ministry, but above all to understand their roles in the home and in the family. But all of that is for naught, race, class, and gender, if we don't see Jesus and focus everything on Jesus, because in Jesus Christ, 
our oneness in him supersedes our natural distinctions. Again, we're not so spiritual where we don't see it or talk about it. Yeah, we see it and talk about it, we put, but we put it in the proper context. Because if we just start sociologically or anthropologically, there's going to be great division amongst us. But we first and foremost start theologically and Christologically and biblically with the Bible so that then you can understand how these things work and fit together. And so in God's diverse kingdom, we can acknowledge and even celebrate these differences. Why? Because this is how God made us. In God's diverse kingdom, there are still many challenging problems, but we know there is only one solution, and his name is Jesus. Because if this were easy, we'd see a whole lot more diversity, not only here, but around the world in terms of people who worship God. But typically, really at a rate of about 93%, churches are homogeneous, which means around the world, they are made up of like-kinded people. People like to go to church with people who look like them, think like them, use the same version of the Bible as them, vote like them, believe every theological tenet like them. Diversity scares a lot of people because if you get the adults together, the kids might get together and they might start dating. And I don't know if my grandfather would be up for that, you know. So, so it scares a lot of people and they're content to just wait to get to heaven to experience diversity. But why not, as Jesus said, thy will be done on where? Earth as it is in heaven. So roughly 7% of churches are truly multi-ethnic or multi-racial. Why is that? And as a friend of mine who came today named Fred, we were talking yesterday in the barbershop, and we were tracing back a lot of this division amongst races. It started with the church, with Christians, who were taking passages way out of context, uh, really evil by how they uh, interpreted them to say that black people were cursed and should be slaves and all kinds of things. And churches were divided racially and denominationally. And so part of the reason we're in this mess is because the church put us in this mess. But I believe as the church put us in this divided mess, there are churches that's going to get us out of this divided mess. Can somebody say amen? Because as Brian Patterson said last week, quoting Bill Hybels, the local church is still the hope of the world. And it's time for the church to look like the world. The world is diverse. And so we need to stop being so homogeneous and start being more multidimensional and multiracial and multi-economic. Why? Because that is the kingdom of God. So when we have problems, we go to Jesus for the solution. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I asked you to give me a math equation that equaled four, I said, I, I want the answer for a math equation addition that equals four. Somebody would say two plus two equals four. And I would say to you, you're absolutely correct. But if you try to say to me that that's the only way to arrive at the solution or the answer for two plus two, I would tell you that you're wrong because there are other ways to get to the answer for. Why? Because two plus one plus one equals four. Am I right about it? Three plus one 
equals four. Four plus zero equals four. One plus one plus one plus one equals the answer four. There are several ways to get to the answer. Your way is not the only way. Your way is not the best way. Your way just happens to be a way to get to the answer four. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven, of things on earth, of things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one should boast for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved for there is one mediator between God and men and that is the man Christ Jesus for Jesus is the answer for the world today above him there is no other because Jesus is the way if we started talking more about Jesus we can talk properly about race if we talk more about Jesus we can talk properly about class if we talk more about Jesus we could talk properly about gender issues so I don't know about you but from this pulpit and with these two ashy lips right here I'm gonna be talking about Jesus and if you can't handle that you can't handle the truth <laughs> you can't handle the truth that is the truth so for Strong Tower Bible Church our vision is to experience and to expand God's diverse kingdom in the city and throughout the world. We did not create this. We did not come up with this. This comes from the word of God. This is a kingdom paradigm that Strong Tower Bible Church is using because we're part of the kingdom. We're just bold enough to step out and take God at his word and stop being so comfortable and pick up crosses realizing that when we lay our lives down because sometimes we want to be comfortable when we come to church and that's why so many people stay with people who are like them but when we lay our lives down we're able to pick up a different kind of quality of life through the resurrection of the spirit that makes us so glad that we laid the life down to begin with but those of us who don't want to lay it down We'll never find it. But Jesus said, lay it down and you'll find it. You'll find it in abundance. Oh, my. So Paul wrote, Paul wrote about this diverse kingdom in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Wait a minute, Paul. You serious Jews and Greeks have conflict with one another. What are you talking about? Well, there is neither slave nor nor free. Oh my, there are different classes there, Paul. And there's neither male nor female. Wait a minute, Paul, there's a lot of male chauvinism in the first century where women are treated like cattle and property. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, he goes on to say, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are one, even though you're not the same. Because your identity in Christ supersedes your natural distinctions of race, class, and gender. And if the church in Galatia could get a hold of that, not only could they be changed, but they could change the world around them. And if this church, 2014, can get a hold of this concept, 
that is Christ first and Christ most. And around him, everything else comes into clarity. Oh, man, if we put that first, we could change a divided world. My God. Well, Paul wrote about it. And not only that, he lived it. He practiced what he preached. Paul was chosen by Jesus to a life of diverse unity. He was challenged and chosen by Jesus. As when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was an unbeliever going to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus met him on that road and knocked him off of his high horse, literally. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And it's hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads. And at that moment, he was transformed. He had seen the resurrected Christ on that road and it blinded him for three days. Jesus told a man by the name of Ananias, you go into town and find a street called Straight. There's a man in a house there who's praying. He's blind. You go in and lay hands on him that he may receive his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. Ananias said, oh, wait a minute, Lord. You do know that he's killing Christians. The Lord said, Ananias, you get up and go. Why did Jesus say that? He said, this man is my chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israel. So from the beginning, God gave, Jesus gave Paul this multi-ethnic, multi-dimensional calling from Jump Street. And I would venture to say that you are here because you recognize that this is still the call of God for Jews and Gentiles to come together in the name of Jesus Christ, for blacks and whites to come together. Pastor, why do you always talk about black and white so much? There's a lot going on around the world between Arabs and Palestinians and, uh, I mean, uh, Palestinians and Israelites. And why do you always talk about black and white? Well, in the context of America, much of the tension that has gone on and the one that has the deepest root is between black and white. And, and, and just like the book ends on a bookshelf that hold up the books in between, let's picture one side is black and the other side is white. Well, when you pull black and white together, everything in between comes together. When black and white can come together in America, everybody else coming together with us too. So that's why I talk about it, not to mention that I happen to be a black man. I didn't ask to be black. God chose me to be black. I didn't ask to be born in Baltimore and then migrate to Tennessee. But God chose me to be born in Baltimore and migrate to Tennessee. I didn't ask to start a church, but God chose me to start a church, and it would be a diverse church. And I'm so glad He chose me to be a part of what He's doing. Is anybody else glad? <laughs> Pastor, I hear you. you ain't got to be all loud. Yes, I do. <laughs> so let's look at Paul. Let's look at Paul. Because as I was coming up, Learning the faith. I wasn't taught how to put flesh on the Bible. These were just kind of wise sayings that were just lifted off the page. But I wasn't really taught to read the Bible as a historical, actual piece of literature. 
And so there are real people here who lived in a real time, a real place, who went through real experiences. And the Bible records history. And so it's important to look at these historical narratives in their proper context. So Paul, what do we know about you in terms of race, class, and gender? Because if you're going to put this out to the church in Galatia, you better live this yourself. We don't need any more preachers talking about what they're not walking or living. So if Paul were here to testify, he'd grab this mic and say, Pastor Chris, let me tell you, I live the diverse kingdom. Matter of fact, let me prove it, Paul and race. Number one, he was a Jew who was born with Roman citizenship. It was a setup from the beginning. God set him up. He was born a Jew, but his parents had acquired Roman citizenship. Therefore, he didn't purchase his Roman citizenship. He was born a dual citizen of Israel and of the province of Rome. Ah, God was setting that brother up because if you're going to be able to go out and minister to Gentiles, you've got to have a Gentile passport. Oh, and oh my, God was working it out. Another thing about race. Paul was bilingual, fluently speaking Hebrew and Greek. He was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. So Jesus gave him that calling. He was part of a multi-ethnic church in Antioch. In Antioch, I believe it's in Acts chapter 11, there were people of, 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 who were African, who were European, who were Semitic, who were part of the church. And not only a part of the church, but a part of the church's leadership. So if a church is truly to be diverse, the people sitting in the pew want to make sure that they look up on the platform and see people who look like them in true positions of power and leadership. Well, the church at Antioch that Paul was a part of, he was a part of that team. Then he went out and he planted multicultural churches comprised of Jew and Gentile. He ministered alongside of Gentiles, such as Titus, Silas, and Luke. Oh, man. He stood up for Gentiles to not get circumcised at the Jerusalem Council. I bet all the Gentiles were like, thank you, Paul. Oh, praise the Lord for you, Paul. When the Jews were saying, man, those Gentiles, they keep coming into our church. There's so many of them coming into our church. Let's go ahead and put a restriction on them. They've got to get cut just like we got cut. Paul said, wait a minute. No, no, no. The cutting of the flesh does not make one right with God. What makes one justified or declared righteous with God is the heart. One's belief in Jesus Christ, not the cutting of the flesh. So he stood up that day for the gospel of grace and not the gospel of works, which is no gospel whatsoever. But not only that, he addressed racial tensions in his letters between Jews and Gentiles, and he offered the cross of Jesus as the only remedy for unity. The book of Ephesians, he talks about that wall of separation that's between Jew and Gentile. And he's talking about in the temple area because the Jews were segregationalists, in a sense, against Gentiles. And they would hang signs up before Jim Crow put them up. They would put them up in the temple area, basically saying, no Gentiles beyond this point. Then they had another area, no women beyond this point. And so they practiced segregation in the temple area. 
area. But when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the wall of hostility, the barrier between Jew and Gentile, creating out of the two, one new man saved by grace. That's what Paul preached when there was racial hostility. And I don't care if you drop me off in Ferguson, Missouri. I don't care if you drop me off in South Africa, wherever you drop me off. Yes, there are real political issues. Yes, there are real socioeconomic issues, but somebody's got to talk about the unity that can only be found in Jesus. Why? Because around the cross of Jesus, the ground is level. There are no big eyes and little U's. We're all guilty before God, but we can all be made right with God by the blood of Jesus. I tell you, if we start there, but too often the churches are talking about Jesus. Too often the white church don't even want to talk about what's going on. Too often the black churches, we're going too much into the social. But if somebody can balance it out and bring people together, oh my, the world needs the church to be together if the world ever has a chance to come to Jesus Christ. Oh man. Oh, so Paul, Paul, he was, he publicly confronted Peter when he exhibited racial hypocrisy. So Paul just didn't keep it to himself, but he saw Peter who experienced this freedom in Christ now, where now he's going to sit down at the Gentile lunch table and start eating what Gentiles eat. And he was getting down on all that part of the pig that he was not allowed to eat as a kosher Jew growing up. Oh, he had ham hocks and chitlins and pig ears and pig feet. He had ham and pork chops. He had all of that stuff from the rooter to the tutor. He was enjoying himself. Until some Jews from Jerusalem came to Antioch. And when Peter saw them, he separated himself from the Gentiles and, and, and tried to go over where the Jews were. In other words, he was practicing segregation when the Jews showed up. And he almost got away with it, but Paul saw the whole thing. Paul said, hold on, homie, hold on, homie. You were doing all right till them boys from the hood showed up. You were doing all right. And what you're doing is you're practicing hypocrisy and you're saying to your Gentile brothers that they're not worthy to eat with you. And you withdrew. And Paul said, no, I rebuke Peter in front of everybody. I don't care if he's an apostle. He's a man. And as a man, he's prone to fall and he sinned publicly and I'm going to rebuke him publicly. Not Peter. Oh, we're going to learn about him next week. Not Peter, the one who preached on Pentecost and all these different nationalities came to Christ. Not Peter, who was used in Acts chapter 10 to see the Gentiles, Cornelius's house, come to faith in Christ. Not Peter, because nobody's perfect. None of us have arrived on this road of reconciliation across race, class, and gender. We're all in process. So we don't need to try to act like we're further along down the road than we are. Thank God we're on the road and we're heading in the right direction. Can I get a witness in here? None of us have gotten it all together. Not even Peter had it all together. But Paul said, I'm calling him out. And he was physically assaulted, not only by Jews, but also by Gentiles whom he came to serve, being stoned, whipped, and ultimately executed. Gentiles killed Paul. His own people stoned him. So when you're in the middle trying to bring people together, you catch it from both sides. Which is why I think a lot of people don't want to try to bring people together because the people you try to bring together may be the same ones that try to smack you upside your head when you're not looking. Don't you know I've been treated more harshly racially by my own people than by white people? 
that black people can be even more prejudiced. A lot of black people don't like to think that they're prejudiced or racist. But man, black people are prejudiced and black people can be racist. And I've been called the N-word more by black folk than by white folk. You don't have to say amen on that because it's making some of us uncomfortable. So pastor, move on. But we refuse to have a Christianity that doesn't live in the nasty here and now, that doesn't deal with the stuff of life. And even in that, Jesus has the answer. Oh, my. I could stop and chase that rabbit on that road because it got a lot of meat on it. But let me get back to this path right here. Oh, we're going to do some stuff coming up because the best way to learn is not in this setting where pretty much it's me speaking. We're going to go back to the old days of having G-race discussions where we talk about race in light of grace in small groups. And you can ask questions, even make comments without fear of being stoned. Let the church say amen. (laughs) Yeah, and if you got stones in your pockets, we're going to check you at the door. Because some of y'all, man, y'all go off when you hear something like, "Mm," it bring up all kind of stuff. Jesus want to minister to us right there. So Paul and race, how you doing in the race area? Hmm? Doing all right? Said, Pastor, I'm here. Keep on preaching. All right, let's go on to part two. Paul in class. Well, he experienced wealth and abundance as a Pharisee, which means the brother had some bread in his pocket. He was on a whole nother level. He's part of the elite in Israel. But once he got into ministry, he experienced poverty and abasement as a preacher. That's why he could say in Philippians 4, I've abounded, but I've also experienced abasement. I've been high and I've been low and I've been everything in between. Yet I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be rich through Christ. I can be poor through Christ. I can be a free man through Christ. I can be a prisoner through Christ. Oh, man, you got to love that brother. He was eager to remember the poor in his apostolic ministry. He didn't overlook poor people. He says, I'm eager to serve them. He took up offerings in Antioch and delivered them to poor saints in Judea. Paul experienced hunger and homelessness, even being shipwrecked on a ship, on a boat. He experienced injustice by being falsely accused and thrown into jail a number of times. He had wealthy Christian friends like Philemon. He had poor slave friends like Onesimus. He encouraged equality between rich and poor saints, whereby the poor could benefit from the rich's resources and the rich could benefit from the poor person's faith. He encouraged slaves in the Greco-Roman world to get their freedom if it were possible, but not to be discouraged if they didn't. So Paul understood class issues. How are we doing in that department? And a lot of times we won't develop a heart for it if we don't spend time with it. And so thank God for the church where we encourage people of various means to come in. And we don't call you out and say, oh, they go to poor folk, they go to rich folk. And we definitely don't do what they do in the book of James where they said, tell the poor people, just sit up under my feet somewhere. And, and, you know, and, but when that guy comes in with fine apparel, give him a good seat. Oh, no, no, not at Strong Tower Bible Church. We're all one, even though we're not the same economically. 
Mm, 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 mm. And we're going to help people, and we do help people. Let's find jobs. Let, 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 let's get a better sense of handling income. So whether we have $1 million or $100, we know how to budget, and we know how to give. We know how to save. We're teaching financial stewardship to whomever is willing to learn at Strong Tower. But then thirdly, and finally, Paul and gender. Paul, did you really practice what you preach, man? Well, he personally utilized and publicly endorsed Phoebe as a capable minister. Now, again, this is unheard of during this time where women are truly discarded and mistreated. Paul ministered publicly to Lydia and the women by the river in Philippi. He endorsed mutual submission in marriage. We need some caveman Christians in the 21st century to get a hold of this. Because we got some men who love to quote Ephesians 5, 18, or 22, wives submit, wives submit. But don't want to talk about Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Because if she knows you love her sacrificially, she'll submit to you gladly. But she probably ain't submitting to you because she questions if you really love her. But if both of y'all would go back a few verses to 518 of Ephesians and both of y'all got filled with the Holy Spirit, you could then submit to each other verse 21 and then you can then submit to him verse 22 you can then love her verse 25 but it all starts with 518 can some oh and this part is just free i'm just throwing in this part free so paul said man there's mutual submission husbands and wives submitting to each other unheard of we need more of that today he also wrote that a wife had power over her husband's body so it just wasn't that the husband had power over the wife's body in terms of relations. She also had authority over his body in terms of relations. Uh, wives, did you hear that? Did my wife hear that in the front row? That you've got power, Holy Ghost power, over my body. <laughs> I need you to use it. Keep on using it. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Paul wrote that a wife had authority under certain pretenses to divorce her husband, but that a husband could not divorce his wife under the same pretenses. Paul honored and publicly acknowledged women in his letters such as Lois, Eunice, Aphia, Mary, Julia, Tryphena, and Tryphosa. He utilized the teaching gift of Priscilla calling her a fellow worker in Christ. And on occasion, he wrote her name before her husband Aquila's name. See, that would ride over some people's mind. But he would say Priscilla and Aquila, not always Aquila and Priscilla, because he's dropping a little bit at a time. He know they can't handle so much, but he's like, man, let's talk about what God talked about in Genesis 1, that I'm giving them dominion over the earth, husband and wife. Yes, the husband is the leader of the home, but they have dominion. So he's sprinkling it in just a little bit, and he puts her name first. Oh, I got, and then he talks about her teaching in that house church, which means that that was probably not Aquila's gift, but it was Priscilla's gift of teaching. Oh, I love it. I love it. So as I close, Paul experienced 
and expanded God's diverse kingdom. This kingdom that transcends race, class, and gender due to the oneness, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. No wonder he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me. Just don't listen to what I say. Do what I do. When I'm loving Gentiles, Jewish people, do what I do. Gentile people love Jews the way I'm loving them. Do what I do. When I'm empowering the poor and standing up for the slave, rich folk, do what I do. When I'm encouraging wealthy people and teaching them that their dignity and their personhood is not found in how much they have, but in how much they give. He says that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. To be rich in good works. Oh, man, poor people, don't you look down on yourself because you may not have as much money as somebody else. You've got Jesus. Do what I do. Practice this across gender and class and race. Imitate me, Paul said, in the diverse kingdom. He said, as I imitate Christ, which means for Paul, the diverse kingdom didn't even originate with him. It originated with Jesus because Paul is imitating Jesus as he's telling people to imitate him as he's imitating Jesus. Oh, we do not have the time to talk about how Jesus broke down racial barriers. Oh, we do not have the time to talk about how our beloved Jesus broke down class barriers and gender barriers. Paul was only imitating what he knew to be true in his Savior and in his Lord Jesus. So let's continue the train. We're going to follow Paul as he's following Christ. And somebody's going to follow you as you're following Paul, as you're following Christ. In terms of the diverse kingdom, no more homogeneity. No more comfortable homogeneousness in our lives. But Lord, give us some gumbo, please. Give us the soup of the south, Lord. Put it all together because, man, I want it all, Lord, not just some of it. Because like Paul and ultimately like Jesus, I live to experience and expand God's diverse kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I want others to imitate me, especially my children. Especially my children. Oh, man. What about you? What about you? Well, as I close, I want to tell you about a hero of the faith who imitated Jesus and who changed the country, if not the world. Many of us have never heard of him primarily because of racism or because of denominationalism. But I'm going to tell you about him today. His name is William J. Seymour. William J. Seymour was born in 1870 in Louisiana, the son of former slaves. And at a young age, he sensed a call into the ministry, grew up Baptist, experienced a call into the ministry. So he decided to go to Bible school in Houston, a holiness Bible school, a Pentecostal Bible school. 
But because of segregation and Jim Crow laws, he was not able to sit in the classroom with the white students. He had to sit in the hallway and listen to the lectures from Mr. Parham, the professor. He didn't let that stop him as he got the word and began to learn about the Holy Spirit's movement through the book of Acts. Well, he got invited to take a church in Los Angeles. And so he went out to this church in 1906, and he started preaching about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And he preached, and he preached. Well, he made the people nervous who called him to the church because he kept talking about spirit baptism. They, made, they were so nervous that they decided to padlock the church so that he couldn't get back in to start preaching again. Well, although the door was locked and slammed shut, he heard about this prayer meeting that was happening down the street in a home where people were crying out for the Holy Spirit in 1906. And when he joined that prayer meeting, it became an integrated prayer meeting where together they cried out for God and they cried out for God. Well, in that context, many people began to speak in other languages to the point where news began to spread around town. So many people started coming to this house that the porch collapsed as they would try to share the word with people and pray. So what they decided to do with William Seymour as the leader, a black man leading in segregated America in 1906, they went down the street to an old barn and inhabited it. It was once a Methodist church. It died and then it became a barn. Well, they started renting it on Azusa Street. And for three years, from 1906 to 1909, they had daily meetings of worship and prayer and deliverance and healing where people would come from all over the world to see what was going on. And as people came in as skeptics, they left out as believers. And when people would begin to speak in other languages, they would speak in actual languages that missionaries were hearing on the mission field. So it was a miracle. People were being healed. It was a revival. It did not stop. And this one little man who, son of slaves, who had one good eye because the other eye was ruined through smallpox, he led and when he preached he didn't even have a pulpit he they put together some little crates around him and many times when he would preach he would be so low you couldn't even see him because they didn't want to make it about him and he would go on to write that the greatest miracle of azusa street wasn't the ability for people to speak in tongues the greatest miracle at azusa street was that White ladies allowed black men to pray over them. And Indians came in from India and they were able to pray with and sing with and worship with black people and natives and Latino. The greatest miracle of Azusa Street was the fact that the church, though diverse, became one. In the midst of great segregation, their leadership team was diverse. But that movement died. Because there were people jealous and people who did not want to respect what God was doing through a man of color to lead that particular movement. And one of the reasons you have a pretty much all white assemblies of God 
in an all-white church of God in Christ is because the racial unity that they were experiencing briefly for three years, they could not maintain. And thus the church became divided along racial lines. But for a moment, they had it. For a moment, they had a revival. And I don't know if there's anybody here. As you stand to your feet with me right now, if you stand to your feet right now, if you have the courage to say to God, God, what you did back then, and it didn't even start at Azusa, it started on the day of Pentecost. Didn't even start on the day of Pentecost, it started in Genesis chapter 12. But God said, I'm going to bless every family on the face of the earth through the seed, Jesus. And I'm asking God, what you did on Azusa Street, keep doing here. Because this thing I've downplayed over the years, yeah, we got different people coming together. Pastor Daryl keeps reminding me, Pastor Chris, this is your legacy. This is what you were chosen by God to lead. Accept it. Embrace it. Run with it because it's needed. So, Lord, what you did back then, when you poured out your spirit on Azusa Street, and people came together of different economics, race, and gender. He had women in his leadership team. Lord, would you be so pleased to support your spirit in great measure on Granny White Pike, where people will come from near and far, not to see some preacher, but to experience Jesus in a way that they've never experienced him before. Knock down the walls of racial division. Knock down the walls of classism. Knock down the walls of gender exclusivity. Knock them down, Jesus. And create something that we all want, even though sometimes we're afraid of. Father God, I ask that you break every chain. Everything in our mind, everything from our past that would teach us not to hang with those folk, not to go but so far. Do a new thing. Those of us who are afraid, replace fear with the kind of love that drowns out fear. Those people prayed for your presence. They prayed. And you showed up in power. To the point where today, millions of Christians can trace their lineage back to Azusa Street. Lord, why not? Why not? We promise for what you already have done, we give you the glory. But if you want to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that Strong Tower Bible Church could ever ask or think, look, we want to be a part of a revival. Do it. Do it. In Jesus' name.